turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, as I said, we're going to begin a series today we're entitling uh, where, culture, where Christianity and Culture Collide. And I want to challenge us in this series to, to have biblical convictions, to help us to be able to biblically defend what we believe and to defend our, our convictions. We, we cannot control culture. We cannot control what culture believes about these issues, but we can control our response and our defense in the face of that culture. And that is what I want to achieve. That is what I want to accomplish through this series to allow us to biblically defend our beliefs, to biblically defend the Bible, our convictions. Our culture has convictions. Our culture has ideas and, and ideals about issues such as abortion and homosexuality and poverty and orphans and widows and uh, sex slavery and marriage and uh, sexual morality, racism, religious liberties, all these issues. These are things that I want to address in this series. There, there was a day, there was a day in our culture where, where the church and the world held similar beliefs on these issues. There, there was a day when, when people raised their families, whether they were believers or not, there was a general sense of morality. There was a general sense of agreement. Today, our culture is not in that place. Strongly opposes anything that, that doesn't jive with what they believe. And culture wants to be the determiner of what we believe. There was a day when tolerance, the biblical definition of tolerance was this. You and I could see things differently, and we would agree just to see things differently. Today, culture has imposed upon us or seeks to impose on us a definition of tolerance that says this. The church better believe what the world believes. And if you don't believe what we believe, you're intolerant. Well, the reality is, is the very people that are saying that are intolerant as well. Tolerance does not mean we believe, we agree. Tolerance means we see this very differently and we're going to walk, we're going to walk, we're going to keep walking, but we're going to agree to disagree on this. The world wants us to cave in and believe what they believe about these issues. The, the gulf between the world and the church, the comfort of being a Christian, the, the, the culturally accepted position of having convictions and sticking with them is not a popular thing anymore. As long as your convictions agree with the world's, they're fine with that. But the moment they depart, there's problems. And so how do we as a church respond? How, how do we as a church respond biblically accurately? consistently how do we stand in the face of a culture that opposes us without buckling our knees and without caving in without watering down the gospel without watering down the bible how do we stand in front of a culture that that just just and this has always been around you go to the end of the book of judges guess what it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes that's the culture we live in there's nothing new the issues that we're going to address, they've always been around. I believe strongly that, that, that because culture is not okay with it, that's what's exposing the problem in the church. There was a day where culture went along with it. I, I'm not so sure that everyone in the church agreed, but we, but we went along with it. See, but now culture doesn't go with, along with us on these things anymore. And it's exposing things. 
And that's why I want to address them. Look, look with me in 1 Peter 3. This is where we're going to start today. We're not going to, we're not going to address any of these issues today. We're going to address the issue behind the issues and our conviction on these issues today. We're going to address the motivation and, and really the foundation for all of this today. In 1 Peter 3, starting, start in verse um, 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for what is wrong. For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Listen to me. God, here's the main point, and you see it on your handout. And you can see on that handout, it's front and back today, I got a lot of cover. I thought about that as I told y'all to get out of the fellowship hall quickly. You're probably thinking, well, get me into the fellowship hall quickly, and I'll get out of the fellowship hall quickly. <clears throat> listen, listen to me. Listen to me. Here's the main point today. God has designed the church. God has designed the church in order that truth would be maintained in the world through human defense. Part of our responsibility is to protect truth. It is to defend biblical truth. God has ordained it that the church, that Christians who make up the church, be protectors of truth. Listen, to in Jude 3, he says, Contend for the faith earnestly. In Philippians 1.7, Paul says, I have, been, I have been called to a defense and a confirmation of the gospel. In Acts 17, Paul says it was his custom to reason with the, from the Scriptures daily. Part of our existence, our, our job, if you will, our reason for being here still on this earth, that we weren't saved and just called home, our, our, our position in Christ is to defend truth. And, and, and as I studied 1 Peter 3, I, I was very convicted about what this passage really is saying. And, and what the core... Pro I, I was convicted even at, at what I feel like God was revealing to me as the core problem in the church. Listen to me. What, what God is calling us here to in 1 Peter 3 is not simply to give right answers. He's not calling us simply to have this card in our back pocket that says, hey, if, if they ask you this, then you tell them this. That's not the defense he's calling us about. What Peter is saying here is not just right answers to either shut people up, to stop them in their tracks, to prove that you're so smart. Our goal is not to be right. Our goal is not just to look smart. Listen to me. The goal of our defense is the exaltation of God, His character, His Son, and His promises. The goal of the defense is to exalt our Savior. The goal of our defense is to make much of our Savior and His promises. In, in Philippians 1, Paul, Paul says this. Listen to what he says. He says, 
And, I, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless. What, what was the motivation behind it all? Love. But that love was fueled through knowledge. But, but love was the fuel. The goal was to lead them to our Savior. It was to make much of Jesus. What, what Peter is calling us to, what I'm going to call us to in this series is, is an attitude that says, I, I'm not de- defending some sterile truth. I'm defending the God whom I love. I, I'm defending a Savior who gave His life for me. Th- these aren't just sterile truths. These are not just 1 plus 2 equals 2. 1 plus 2 equals 3, actually, so it's not 1 plus 2 equals 2. That's why I'm a pastor, not a math teacher. We have somebody else do our books, I promise you. I promise you somebody else counts, counts all this stuff. But what we're defending here, listen to me. When we defend this book, listen, we're defending God's character. These aren't just sterile truths. This is the character of our Father. Listen, communion with God, a relationship with God through the doctrine that we contend for, it is a relationship. Please hear me. Our defense is a relationship with God. We are relating with God through this doctrine, through this truth. It's not simply some sterile doctrine. We're relating to God through this truth. Our defense flows from a love relationship. It is a, it is a people who have set apart God more than anything else, who loves God more than anything else, and they, 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 they will defend in 1 Peter, Paul, we're mainly going to focus on verses 14 and 15, but Paul says, Paul says, be ready. The, the question becomes, what does it mean to be ready? What does it mean to be ready to give a defense? Look with me, turn in your Bibles, it, it may come up on the screens there, Luke 21, and, and it's important that we see this passage because when you, when you look through the Bible, it appears clear to, to me that there is a right way to be ready and there is a wrong way to be ready to give a defense. Jesus is telling his disciples here in Luke 21 about things to come. And and listen to what he says. He says, But before all these things, they they will lay their hands on you, and they will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and the prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead you to an opportunity for your testimony. Do you see that? Do you see what your persecution offers? Do you see what he's saying there? Listen, so make up your mind. You would think, okay, he would say, okay, so here's what you need to tell them. No, look what it says. So make up your minds not to prepare anything beforehand to defend yourselves. Interesting. So in Luke, he says, hey, don't prepare anything. Don't be ready. And in 1 Peter, he says, be ready. If we don't get this right, it would appear that there would be contradictions. But here's what he's saying. There's a right way to be ready to give a defense, and there's a wrong way to be ready to, be, to give a defense. In your Bibles, look at verse 15, and, and, and I, you're going to say, why does this matter? I'm going to help you show why it matters. Mine says this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready. The word being there is not in the original text. That, that verb is not there in the original text. It is there in our English. Hopefully, in, in your Bible, there's a word there in, in the New American Standards, just a plug for the New American Standard. Uh, it's italicized. That tells me it's not in the original language. It's there to help me read it. 
But here, here you say, well, who cares, Chris? Here's why it matters. In the original language, listen to what this passage says. It would literally read, if, if you were reading the Greek, this is what it would say. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always ready to make a defense for everyone who asks you. Where, where does our defense flow from? It flows from setting Christ apart from all others. The defense flows from revering Christ more than anything else. There is a close connection. What this passage teaches us, there is a very close connection between sanctifying Christ in your heart and always being ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Do you see the connection? When, when we sanctify Christ or revere Christ, this is what he's saying. The fear of man is replaced by hope in Christ. That's exactly what he says in verse 14. Do not fear their intimidation, nor be troubled. It's interesting. Peter, in 1 Peter 3, is quoting Isaiah 8. L listen to what Isaiah 8 says, and I think it will shed some light on, 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 on our defense. Peter is quoting Isaiah 8. In the context, God is giving Isaiah a warning about how they should feel about their countrymen and about the Lord. Listen, listen to what he says in Isaiah 8, 12 through 14. It was starting verse 11. For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people. That's, the, that's what he's saying. Here's why you don't walk in the way of this people. You are not to say it is conspiracy in regard to that all this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. Listen to this. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy and shall be your fear, and shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the house of Israel and to, and to a stone to strike and rock and stumble over it. See what he's saying there? Did you catch that? Here's, here's what Isaiah is saying. You know why you don't fear man? Because God is your strength. You know why you don't have to worry about man? Because God has given you tons of promises to tell you he has your back. That, that's what Isaiah was saying. Isaiah is saying, listen, Israel, you're not protected by whether man likes you or not. You're protected by a God who is gracious and merciful, who has promised to you that he will be your sanctuary. It doesn't matter if man agrees with you or not. And listen, when you put that together with 1 Peter 3, here's where the light went on for me. And this may be a very convicting sermon. It was very convicting to me and my attitude sometimes. Because I can be the first person to just give you a, just an answer to shut you up and just move on and miss the whole point. Here, here's what it means. We will always be ready to defend God when we worry more about displeasing God than we worry about displeasing man. That's what, that's what Isaiah was saying. That's why Peter quoted, we'll be ready to defend rightly when we care more about displeasing God than displeasing man. When we worry more about what God thinks about us than we worry about what man thinks about us. When we're more, when we're more concerned about representing God than being liked by man, then we're at a spot to rightly defend the gospel. That convict a little bit? 
Here, here's the excuse that I'll hear more than anything. Well, I don't speak up because I don't know enough. I might get asked something I don't know. That might be true. But you know what the Bible undercuts that? You know what the core bottom line is? It's, it's revering Christ. Listen to me. If I loved God enough, I'd go get the answers. If I cared enough, I'd go find the answer. I would, behind the, I would not hide behind the excuse that I don't know the answer. I'd go find the answer. Listen, we will always be ready to defend our faith when, we, when, when the prospect of offending God bothers us more than the prospect of offending others. In the context of Isaiah 8, listen to me. God says he was displeased by his people fearing the same thing that believers feared. God was offended that his people were having the same fears that the world, that the world had. And you would say, and, and namely in that context, the threat of man. Why are you worried about man? And why would this be offensive? Why would, why, you know, isn't fear natural? Isn't, and, and there's a part of that that's true, but listen. What God is saying is the reason we don't fear what unbelievers fear is because we have God on our side. We have His promises on our side. We have His Word on our side. Unbelievers did not have the character of God and the promises of God on their side. God had given His people many, many, many great and precious promises to simply free them up to go in faith and be bold and, and, and do what they were called to do. And knowing the character of their God, knowing these promises, here's what he's saying, that should have taken away the fear of man. There's no reason you should fear man more than you fear me. And what he's saying is, and what he's saying in 1 Peter is this, the fear of man is replaced, you see that on your hand now, with confidence and hope in God through his promises and the character that backs up those promises. When we get to know the God of this Bible, guess what happens to the fear of man? It goes by the wayside. When we understand the character of this great God, that he's for us, not against us, that he who did not spare his own son will also freely give him all things, that if God is for us, who can be against us? When we understand that, and our hope is in that, not in the hope of what man thinks about us, then we're in the right place to defend our God. All throughout Isaiah, you see huge promises that God had offered them. I, I, I'm going to read one real quickly so we can get through this thing. 40, Isaiah 41.10, listen to what God says. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You see the boldness that that should have generated? You say, well, that was the Old Testament. Well, guess what he quotes in, I, in Hebrews 13.5? I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Whether Old Testament or New Testament. You know what God is saying to His people? You can count on me. Thick or thin, you can count on me. I got your back. I'll defend you. Psalm 3, He's, he's our refuge and our shield, not man's opinion. And, and here's the point. Fearing man, you know what it revealed? That they didn't trust God's promises. When we fear man... We're showing that at, at our core, we do not trust God's promises. And guess what? God is offended by that. 
God is offended when His people seek to please the world more than they seek to please Him. When they're more concerned about the, what the world thinks about them than they are about what God knows about them. When they care more about, about being liked than about being holy. When they care about more about fitting in than they are about pleasing God. God says that is offensive. Why? Because I've given you promises. Today he would say this, I put my son on a cross. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 tells us that was a, that in, and he gave us the Holy Spirit as a pledge to say, I'm not backing out on you. I'm for you. I'm not against you. I mean, think about this for a second. Imagine if you were standing over here and another family was standing over here and you asked your son, hey, uh, Ben, who you trust more? You trust the neighbors or you trust mom and daddy? And he's like, it's like when your wife asks you certain questions. If you hesitate, if, you, if your son was, or daughter was standing there and, and, and they asked you, and you're like, you, you would be offended as parents. You, you, at the very worst, those of us watching would say, hey, and, and Ben would never do that. I can pick on Ben. He, that's just you sat in the front row. You're fair game. You know what? You know what we would say? Hey, something's going on behind close. Something's not right in that relationship that Ben would not that quickly choose his parents. It, it, it's like the kid who's standing on the, on, the, on the diving board and the daddy's saying, do you trust me? Jump. And he won't jump. The neighbor's dad jumps in there and the kid jumps right into his arms. How would that make you feel, dad? That, that, that is a, that's a picture in the face, it, with these promises that God has made, with, with, with the cross, with the resurrection, with all the promises, Peter and Isaiah are saying, look, to, to, to fear man is to cast your vote against God. It's to bring in doubt His promises. You have set man above God. You have set man's opinions of you above God's, above pleasing God. And listen, what, what he's saying here and what I'm trying to help us see is this. The proper setting, the proper motivation, the context where a biblical defense for these truths is going to happen is a love for God and a trusting of His character. That is the essence of reverence and that is the source of reverence. It is a love for God. That's where it starts. A love for God. A love for God is what fuels our defense. And what I want us to see is this boils down to relationship, not just answers. It's relationships. It is a feeling, again, that to displease God is more fearful than to please men. It is, it is revering and sanctifying God. It is setting our minds on His promises and on His truth and trusting them more than we trust anything else. You say, is that realistic? And I would encourage you, in Romans 4, look at it later, in Romans 4, 18 and 19, you have, Paul gives a picture of this with regards to Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, let's just say they were beyond child-rearing age. And it's interesting, it says that Abraham still believed. I, I want to read it to, get it to get it exactly right. Listen to this. this is the, Abraham has been told, you're going to have a child the whole nation is going to be built on you. And Abraham's looking around saying, I got no children. Time passed. I got no children. Time passed. I got no children. Time passed. I got no children. Listen to this. 
in hope against hope, he believed. Did you catch that? There was zero reason for Abraham on an earthly level to hope. He hoped against hope. So that he might become the father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Listen to this. Without becoming weak in the faith, verse 19, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet look at verse 20. Yet with respect... To the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong. Man, promises of God. Chris Basham, looking at circumstances through my eyes, doesn't make sense. Guess what? I go over here and I say, yeah, but the promises of God says this. Okay, that's the way it is. It's trusting in God and His Word and His character and His promises. All Abraham had to go on was the word of God. Abraham had zero to trust in except for God's promises. Guess what he did? He didn't waver. And at the risk of, of going against the grain in the culture and at the risk of all the things that say, hey, here's how you, here's how you build, build a big church. T tell them, how, to, tell them, how, to, tell them how, how good they are and how great they are and how awesome they are. I, I, hear me. Every single sermon, there is a temptation. Satan sits there, especially convicting things like this, and says, Chris, water it down a little bit. Make it easy to hear. Water it down a little bit. They'll, 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 they'll like you a whole lot better, Chris. Just water it down a little bit. Every single sermon, there's a temptation. Tickle their ears. Tell them what they want to hear. Tell, tell them we're all going to heaven in a little rowboat. It's all going to be good. Look, the underlying reason, listen to me, the underlying reason that we don't feel free, that it doesn't feel more natural to testify to those around us the realities of Christ and our hope in Christ is because we really don't have a true hope in the promises and character of God. That's not where our hope is founded. Our hope is founded in man liking us and the things of the world and, and we don't want to be persecuted and we want all the things of heaven but we want all the accoutrements of the world as well. If we're honest, we want to try to toe the line, go, ride the fence, walk the fence so that we get all the world and we get all the God. I, just in case this thing ain't right, I got, I got a lot of good stuff in the world. That's, if we're honest, Listen to me, I thought about this illustration as I, as I thought. How many of you in here have china cabinets? Raise your hand. Y'all know you got china cabinets. This is the South. We got some china cabinets, boy. Here, here's what Americans have been duped in. First of all, we overpay, or we get you to come to our wedding and overpay for china that we ain't never going to use. That if you try to use it, I'm going to cut your arms off. Like if you even get near it. And, and just to protect it, you know what we do? We put it in this glass thing, and we show it off. Want everybody to look at it. Don't touch it. Like, I, Chris, Karen, I thought we got all this china for our wedding. Yeah, but we got to buy china we're going to use. So, so we bought china that we're not going to use, and now we got to go buy china. Yes, okay. Okay. But listen to me, why do you protect it? Because it's valuable. Why do you guard it with your whole life? Because it's valuable. Why does the skin, why does the hair on the back of your neck start to stand up when people get near it acting crazy with it? Because it's valuable. 
The hair stands up on the back of my neck when other family members start talking about they're going to leave us their china in their will. That's what makes the hair on the back of my neck. I'm like, I don't even want the china we got, much less your china. I mean, I don't have room for what we got. Listen, but you know why we set it apart? Because it has memories, affections, it's valuable. We, we protect it to show it off. Listen, may, maybe we don't defend the word of God. Maybe we bow down. Maybe it's as subtle as just remaining quiet when these topics come up. But listen to me. The underlying reason is this. We have not set God apart as King of kings and Lord of lords in our lives. We have not protected him the way that we protect our China. We have not set him apart and say, look, I don't care what you say about me, but you're not coming after my God. Look, I don't care what you say about Chris, but you're not going to impugn the character and the word and the integrity of my God. And I don't care what you do to me, I'm going to go down defending him. Why do I do that? Not so I can shut you up, because I love him. Why will I protect my family? I, obviously, I'm not a physical presence. You come into my home trying to hurt my family, I'm going to go down swinging. Why? Because I love them. I love them. And I love them more than you. And listen to me, why can't I water this down? Why can't I tell us what I want to hear? Because I love you, but I love God more than you. And I love this word more than you. I mean, why, 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 would, we, why would we care more about China than we do about God? Why would we spend more time worried about protecting China than we would knowing the word of God and protecting it? Why, why would we not protect gospel truth with the same fervor that we protect worldly truths? I mean, you talk about our teams, it's on. You talk about God, people just sit there quiet as a mouse. Why? And I thought about this, I thought, okay, you know, the band-aid's off, let me just, I'll just, in my mind, I got all these thoughts, I'll, I'm going to get in trouble, but... Listen to me, I hear all these excuses and this and that. Let me ask some tough questions. My kid's involved in sports. I, I, I'm involved in sports. You're involved. When's the last time you slept in on your sports team and didn't make the game because you slept in? When's the last time you just didn't go to practice because, yeah, I just didn't feel like it? When's the last time you let your kid not go to school because they just didn't feel like it? They were too tired. When's the last time you allowed anything to conflict with your sports schedule? I, I hear people say, well, you know what? I'm teaching my son and daughter commitment. You know what, Chris? And you preached on it a couple weeks ago. Hypothetically, this is a discussion. You know what? I'm not thinking of anybody. I don't want you to be wondering, who's Chris talking about? You know what, Chris? You said let your yes be yes and your no be no. And you know what? I'm going to teach them that through sports. My question is this. What about your yes to God? What about our commitment to God? What about our commitment to his people? That's why in Hebrews 10 he says, Do not forsake the assembling together. We gather to be encouraged. We don't gather for just one. of We gather as a body to be encouraged. And it's a picture to the world that we set everything else on pause to come here and meet with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because it's important. It's important. Listen to me. Malachi 1, listen to this. 
starting in verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, God is saying, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my respect, says the Lord of hosts? O priest, you despise my name. But you say, how do we despise your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for service, is that not evil? Or sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is that not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Would he receive you kindly, says the Lord? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept your offering from you. For from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered in my name, and a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations. Listen, but you are profaning it, in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. Its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome is it? They're, they're literally saying, you know, we got all these offerings. I got to do these offerings. It's so tiresome. He says, you disdainly sniff at it. And you bring what has been taken by robbery and what is lame and what is sick. And that's what you bring for an offering. God says, should I receive that from your hand? You know what he's saying? Let me, let me summarize that for you. He's saying God is not honored with leftovers. He's not honored with leftovers. He's not honored with an attitude, well, you know what, if, I'm, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I've got nothing else going on, I'll be there. If I don't have anything else on the calendar, I'll do that. Hey, if everything else works, that's leftover. You know, we're not offering lame animals on the altar anymore, praise God for that. You know what we're offering? Lame commitments. That's what we're offering. That, that, that's where we are. That, if that's you, that's, this is, it's lame. It's leftovers. He's saying this, you give a better offering to the world, why would we give a better offering to the world than we would give God? That's what he's saying. And the battle for all of us, hear me, it's in my life and it's your life. I struggle with this as well. It's to keep God first. Grace does not make allegiance optional. And it boils down to hope. It boils down to hope. It boils down to love. And listen to me. What I want in this series more than anything, more than anything, is that your defense and my defense would be seen as a delight and not a duty. A delight. It, it, it would be like if somebody walked up to Jimmy and said, Hey, tell me about Allison. He's like, Do I have to? Versus, hey, how much time you got? A delight, not a duty. If we walk out of here and see Christianity as simply a bunch of doctrines and, and do's and don'ts, and we're just defending some sterile truths, it's going to be a duty. But if we see it as a relationship, and we see it as, as, de, as de, defending our king, it'll be a delight and a privilege to defend our king. 
you see on your notes there, if our defense is fueled by just knowing the right answers, just saying what we're supposed to say, our defense will be ineffective. And trust me, we've been there where you know people are just telling you the answers that they've been told and not really answers that they believe. But if our defense is fueled by a love for God, a joy, and a privilege in defending Him, our defense will be effective. Day by day, listen to me, day by day we go to this Bible not to get dry arguments, not to get dry defenses, but to build a love relationship, to fuel a love relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Why spend three years walking through the Bible with these kids to fuel a love relationship? That they'd be enamored with the Word of God and with the God of the Word. And when we, as we move into this series, I, I, I was reading as, as I was studying for this series, uh, three, I want to, I you'll see on your handout, three types of Christians that I just want to, I want you to assess yourself. If, if we're going to get anywhere, if, if you called me and said, Chris, how do we get to where you are? First question I'd ask you is this, where are you? And we need to know where we are. So listen to me, three, three types of Christians you see on your handout. I, I want you to be as honest as you can be. That's bothering me, that's all. As, as honest as you can be, listen to me, the first one is this, couch potato Christian. Couch potato Christian. This is a Christian who adapts to culture by simply staying silent on the tough issues. Seeks to be as neutral as possible with the world. Just look like, hey, I'll do my thing, you do your thing. Content to remain silent, content to avoid any trouble tries to fly under the radar. At the end of the day, the fear of man has trumped their fear of God, and they're quiet. Second one is this, a cafeteria Christian. Cafeteria Christian. These are all going to start with C, so they'll be easy to remember. This group picks and chooses which, scripture, which passages they're going to live by. They opt with the ones that best suit their lifestyle. They pick and choose which, which issues they're going to defend and which issues they're going to be quiet on. They're, they're probably very good at speaking against the issues that they don't have a struggle with or their family might not, and they're very silent about the ones that may be convicting to them. They pick and choose like, like you would at, at uh, a, a buffet. Harping on the things they don't struggle with, silent on the things they do. Harp on the things that the world would agree with, very silent on the things that the world will, will, will fight you on. We know what those are. They're, the world is not going to argue with us uh, going to the Dominican and feeding orphans, for taking care of orphans. The world is not going to argue about that. But share our, share, share our conviction, biblical convictions about homosexuality. Share them about, about same-sex marriage. Share, share them about abortion. We, we, can't, we can't be as gung-ho about, uh, we can't be all in over here because the world agrees and not all in over here. The same God that loves orphans is the same God that loves the unborn baby in the womb. Not a fetus, not, not a matter, not a thing. It's a human. Thirdly of this, a convictional Christian. This is a person that in the face of culture and in the face of opposition and tax, they refuse to be silent. Why? Because they love their Savior more than man. But listen to me, they do it with compassion and they do it with grace, not arrogance. They do it with humility. They do it because we've been recipients of tremendous love and grace by our Savior. That were it not for the grace of God, who knows what we would think. 
Who knows what we would have done? Uh, we do it humbly by saying, you know what, I'm dealing with sin in my life, and you're dealing with sin in your life. Hey, let's come to the cross and have our sin dealt with once and for all, because that's why Jesus came, to make sinners righteous. That we would fit the qualifications to, to be into heaven, because sinners don't get into heaven, righteous people get into heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. Evangelism is not, hey, do you want to go to heaven? Hey, do you want to have joy? Hey, do you want to have this? No, the gospel is this. Do you want to have your sins forgiven? And all these other things, Matthew 6.33 says, come with it. My heart would be this, that we would, my heart would be that we would all be in the number three category by the end of this series. That would be my heart. All of us are going to be faced, when we deal with these issues, all of us in here are going to come in here with, with pasts, past actions on our own, past action members of, of family members. We're going to have good theology on these things. We're going to have bad theology. I hope we would humbly come with the goal of seeing the Bible and what it says and humbling ourselves beneath what the Bible says at all costs. Just like what it says in, in Peter, he says, keeping a good conscience so that those in which you're slandered who revile your good behavior will be put to shame. It is better that we should suffer for what is doing right than suffer as wrongdoers. That we would not be content to be quiet where we differ. That we would humbly and we would graciously and lovingly and respectfully take a stand for our great God. Because the stakes are high. Heaven and hell are in the balance. And the purpose of this series, you see that on your handout, is that we would see that our attitude and conviction about these social issues is in intimately connected to God's character. Why, why does God love the baby in the womb so much? Because He formed the baby in that womb. He numbered their head, their hairs on their head. He numbered their days. He put His Son on a cross to die for the sins of the baby in that womb. Why, why does He, why, does, why is, and again, I'm not picking, I'm just saying, why is sexual immorality of any kind, but, but homosexuality or a, a man with a woman that's not his wife, why is that offensive to God? Because it's contrary to His design. One woman, one man. It's contrary to His design, and that design reflects His character. And we must be a people who courageously share our convictions through what we say and how we live, especially when culture and Christianity collide. We, we, will we be persecuted over it? Yes, we will. But look at what Peter is saying. Hey, count it blessed. If you suffer for doing right, you suffer for the gospel, count it blessed. That's why he says in Luke 9, 23, If anyone come after me... Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Listen, to follow him, Matthew 4.19, we are commanded to follow him. If we are to follow him, our attitudes and convictions on these issues must line up with him who we're following. In order to follow him, that means, look, if, you're, if your attitude is this, Jesus, then my attitude is this. That's what it means to follow. 
It's not about our flesh. It's not about our culture. It's not about our comfort. We're, we haven't become smarter than God. We, don't get, we, we cannot become arrogant and think that we know better now than He does. And listen to me, if, you're nerve, if you have a middle school or a high school student, I, I'm forewarning you, I have asked Chris and his teachers to take these sermons and discuss them in their small groups at 11 o'clock. I want our middle school and high school students to as well be able to give a defense. I want them to work out their theology here so when they go out there, they're, they're, they're unified. Just, and, I, and I say that as a warning, mom, dad, if, if, if you're not sure what they're going to say, if you're not sure what their attitude is on these issues, if you're not sure what they're, if they're, are they going to say something that's going to embarrass me, I'm giving you forewarning. Whatever address issue, and if you want to email me, I'll give you all the topics. I'll give you the order in which we're going to go through the topics. I'll tell you, next week, we're going to look at the glory of a narrow gospel. We're going to look at the beauty of Jesus being the only way. But, but I want them to work out. I want them to, to see defending their Savior as a, as a delight and not a duty, just like I want their mom and dad's and any other people in here to see it as a delight and not a duty. Our job is to make disciples. We exist to make disciples so that we can go out in the world and we can share the glories of, of our Savior and we can share the gospel that He who was without sin bore our sin. Three days later was resurrected. Greatest news in all the world. Our sin can be forgiven. And so can our bad attitudes about this. So can our missteps in the past. They can be forgiven. So wherever we are, repent. I want to engage you, and I want you to engage your family. And I want you so that you can engage your neighbors, and you can engage society, and do it gently and respectfully, but biblically. And you can stand up. So that we don't have to, I think the Bible says, you know. No, this is what the Bible says. And I want to tell you it out of love. But I'm going to tell you it firmly. I'm going to stand up. Because I know the character of the God who told me what my attitude should be on that because it reflects His attitude. And because I know Him and I love Him, I'm going to stand up. I'm going to be God's china cabinet, if you will. I'm going to defend and I'm going to protect. And the importance, listen to me, the importance of us arming the next generation with these truths and believers with these truths cannot be understated. There's a war. It's a war. For your allegiance and my allegiance and for your children's allegiance and my children's allegiance. We need to be equipped to defend.